Matthew 26, 47. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just prayed, and he's speaking to his disciples. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas... Judas, you're supposed to hiss at that moment. One of the 12, one of the 12 arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for the sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of law and the elders had assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath. By the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus said. But I say to you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he spoke in blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? We looked at these passages, these verses to come a few weeks ago, but let's read them here just for context. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. 
And Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The, uh, one of the main themes of Matthew's account of the arrest and trial of the Lord Jesus is that the defection of the disciples. One of them, for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed him. Another one uh, uh, denied that he even knew him. All the disciples in the decisive moment fled, deserted him and fled. And one of them, who John, the apostle John identifies him later, one of them, also Peter, took out his sword and started swinging it around. He was kind of panicking. What's going on here? Let's see if I can stop this. They were not prepared. They were not prepared for this moment, even though Jesus had warned them. Remember, he had said to them, this night because of me, you will all fall away. The scriptures say, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He had told them, he had told them in the garden, watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. He had warned them. He told them and they weren't ready. Matthew wants every single one of the readers of his gospel to see their failure in the text. They were not prepared. And then Matthew wants us to ask ourselves, we who are followers of Jesus, the disciples, they weren't prepared for their hour of testing. Now you're supposed to ask the question, am I? Am I prepared for the hour of testing? Remember, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples. Followers of Jesus help other followers of Jesus follow Jesus. That's what we do. Followers of Jesus help other people follow Jesus. And one of the ways that we help other people follow Jesus is by helping them to get ready for that hour of testing. This is the picture of Thomas Cramner. Thomas Cramner was a leader in the English Reformation. He was appointed by Henry VIII to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. He has somewhat of a mixed record. On the plus side, a huge plus side, let's be honest, he brought into the Church of England the Reformation doctrines of Martin Luther and John Calvin. He uh, produced and then uh, edited heavily the Book of Common Prayer, that, uh, that, the book that so shaped uh, the church in uh, Great Britain. He, he published a volume of sermons so that poorly trained uh, uh, pastors in Great Britain would have something useful to say on Sunday mornings. Uh, he, uh, that's the plus side. On the negative side, he was uh, quite helpful in Henry VIII trying to get all the divorces from all those women that he married. So there's a little bit of that. Um, after Henry VIII died, Thomas, uh, the, the Mary, his daughter, eventually his daughter Mary, became queen, and she was devoutly Catholic, devoutly, devoutly Catholic, and she uh, de defrocked Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and put him in prison. He was there for two years, interrogated and imprisoned for two years, and they told him, they gave him the impression that if he recanted all of his belief in the doctrines that Martin Luther and John Calvin had taught, and if he swore his allegiance to the Pope, that was the central issue, if he did that, then he could go home. So one day in 1556, he signed this document. It said, I confess and believe in one holy Catholic visible church. I recognize as its supreme head upon the earth, the Bishop of Rome, Pope and Vicar of Christ, 
to whom all the faithful are bound subject. It was a denial of all the things that he had taught. He signed it. He wasn't prepared for that hour of testing, though he should have been. Now, I confess to you that, that I've never been in a situation like that. It's easy in a comfortable, climate-controlled space like ours to, to say, oh, I know what I would do in that situation. It's easy to make those professions now. But I've never been in a position like that. There are other followers of Jesus around the world who recently have been and are today in similar circumstances. Several years ago, there were five men who uh, attacked a Protestant church leader in one of the largest churches, uh, one of the, the churches in the, the fourth largest city of Turkey. There was a young man. His name was Camille Kiroglu. He's 29 years old, and he had just come out of a church service uh, in Turkey when these five men attacked him, beat him so severely that he fell unconscious twice in the midst of this attack. Here's what he said. They were trying to force me to deny Jesus, but each time they asked me to deny Jesus and become a Muslim, I was saying, Jesus is Lord. And the more I said, Jesus is Lord, the more they beat me. Um, eventually, they, they left. He was rescued from the situation. And, and Kiroglu said, I am praising God, not because he saved me from death, but because he helped me not to deny him in the shadow of death. Here's a young man who was prepared. Following Jesus faithfully means being ready for the hour of testing. That moment when following Jesus seems to cost a lot more than your temporary security or safety. When, when following him means things uh, confuse you. Here's help for us in Matthew. Matthew wrote this, these scenes so that we would get some help. This is a passage of scripture that we're supposed to take up from two different angles. On the one hand, we come to this passage with this sense of awe, this sense of, of wonder. This is once in a creation. It's not once a year event. It's not once a decade event or once a century event. This is a once in a creation event as the Lord Jesus is arrested and sentenced to death. We're supposed to look at this with awe and wonder. A few years ago, I was sitting in a movie theater watching Avengers Endgame, the movie. Some of you don't watch movies, go to movie theaters, and some of you don't like superhero movies at all, so I confess my depravity to you. I was sitting there in the movie theater watching this, and at the final scene here, Robert Downey Jr. has played uh, Iron Man in 10 Marvel movies. This climactic scene is uh, taking an act that is going to cost him his life, but it's going to save humanity. And we sat in the theater, and at this scene, throughout the movie, people had reacted in various ways. No one moved watching this. No one moved. No one said anything. We were dialed in. The only sound actually in the theater was a, a woman who was a couple rose behind us who was weeping, weeping over this, this, what was happening to her favorite character. You, <coughs> excuse me, you wonder, Jesus mentions angels here in this passage. You wonder, are there angels in heaven looking down at this moment that Matthew 26 records? And are they watching with wonder at what's going on and, and just hoping? I mean, Jesus mentions, I could call my father, he'd send 72,000. 
Is there not an angel in heaven? At least some of them saying, oh, please call us. We're ready. We'll come. We'll come. We'll rescue you from this. Just call. We're ready. Sense of awe and wonder as we read this, these scenes. They're also written to help us. To help us. That's the other angle that we come to this text from. The disciples all defect, and Jesus is, is rock steady in the midst of this. Where does that sense of rock steadiness come from? Where does a disciple's rock steadiness come from in the hour of testing? I'm going to show you two elements in this text that help us, and the first one is the lordship of Jesus. The lordship of Jesus. Now, Let's imagine for a minute here that you have a passing familiarity with Jesus. You're, you know some of the things about him that people talk about. You, you know about the miracles that he did, some of them at least. And, and you know about some of the stories he told. There was one about those two sons and the one ran away and his father welcomed home. And, and there was the great Samaritan. And you know, you know, just have a passing reference to some of the things that he said. You know, uh, judge not that you be not judged. Everybody knows he said that, right? And uh, just some of the other things that you've heard he had said, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. You know those things that Jesus said, right? Did you have a passing familiarity with, with him a little bit? And I want you, but, and you know, he, he, he was crucified. Some people say he came back from the dead. Just imagine, how do you go from miracle-working, storytelling, wise man to uh, executed criminal? How, how would you imagine that would if you didn't know these scenes, how would you imagine that that would come about? Well, Jesus must have been outsmarted by some bad men. He must have been overpowered. He, he must have been somehow encircled by his enemies. There was this grand plot that went together to capture him and bring him in, and he was uh, rammed through a, a, a trial, and he, he just lost. I guess he just wasn't. He wasn't ready. Well, that's not the way that Matthew puts it at all. I want to look with you at the way that Jesus speaks here in these scenes and ask the question, who's really in charge of what's going on? Who's really in charge of what's going on? Notice the first scene is Jesus is arrested in the garden, and he says three things. First, he speaks to Judas. Um, you know, they're there in the garden, and Judas comes up, verse uh, 47 tells us, Judas comes with the guards from the temple. Um, it has to be tonight because Judas, at the Passover dinner that they just had, Jesus had told the disciples that the jig was up, that there was a betrayer in their midst. And Judas knows he's, it's got to be tonight. It's got to be tonight. So Judas leaves the dinner. He goes to the temple. He gets the guards. Maybe they'll go back to where they had the dinner first. Judas is looking for him. And then, oh, no, he's not here. He's at the Garden of Gethsemane. I bet that's where he is. Let's go. And they, they show up. And uh, Dan Doriani says, um, uh, Judas lies in everything he does and says. He says, greetings, which is a way to wish peace to somebody. Judas is not there to bring peace. He's there to bring violence. He says, greetings, rabbi. Rabbi is a term of submission. Uh, you're my master, and I'm here submitting to you. And, and Judas actually is, is uh, in rebellion. And then he kisses him, an act of affection. But he doesn't mean affection at all. He means to do him harm. Why a kiss? Why is this a signal? Well, remember, this is pre-photographic days. Jesus' picture had never been on the cover of the Jerusalem Times. So he wouldn't know what he, was look like, what he would look like, and it was dark. It was dark. These 
Strangers trying to pick out Jesus would have been hard. So they, he, Jesus, Judas identifies him with a kiss. And Jesus says, do what you came for, friend. It's a very hard sentence to translate because there's no verb. The word do is not in the original. It just says literally what you came for, friend. Is it a question? What did you come for, friend? Or is it a command? Do, do what you came for. Let's, let's drop the pretense here, Judas. I know why you're here. You know why you're here. Just do it. The text says, then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. As if, as if what he says, what Jesus says is what prompts them to act. He gives them permission, the command to act, and then they do. Who's in charge here? And then... Jesus speaks, the next words he speaks are to the sword-swinging disciple. Um, uh, John, the apostle John tells us in his account of this, that the sword-swinging disciple is Peter. And actually, John tells us the title, the name of the one whose ear gets cut off. His name is Malchus, which in Hebrew means one ear. And um, no, I'm just kidding. That's not true. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, but but uh, he swings the sword. He swings the sword, cutting off the guy's ear. And Jesus says, it's not the guards, it's not the temple police that stopped Peter. It's Jesus who stops Peter. Who's in charge? Put your sword back in its place. Now, we should think about this here. Um, there are some people who think that verse 52 is an excellent uh, uh, verse that teaches us or advocates for us pacifism. Uh, Dale Bruner thinks it's important that Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, not throw your sword away. He said the sword has a place. Romans 13 tells us the sword it belongs in the, in the hands of uh, the government to enforce justice. Or Luke, the Gospel of Luke suggests that a sword has its place uh, perhaps in self-defense. Its place is not, though, its place is not, though, in the hands of those who would attempt to defend Jesus and spread the gospel by the sword. How much damage has been done to the reputation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by those who try to spread the good news with a sword or a gun? If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Uh, if, if, you, if you cultivate violence, you will harvest violence. What goes around comes around. If you don't want your kids to grow up to be brutal, angry, shouting people, then don't brutally shout at them in anger. You, what you plant what you, is what you will reap here. You, you draw the sword, you'll die by the sword. Peter Peter, didn't you listen to Jesus? He must have said it two or three times. Remember what he said back in Matthew 5? Uh, Peter, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This is not how the gospel is spread. Um, actually, he demonstrates his lordship again too in, in uh, verse 53. I could call on my father and he would send 12 legions of angels, one legion for all the guys that are there, 11 disciples and Jesus. A, a legion, a Roman legion, has 6,000 soldiers in it, 72,000 angels. How much damage do you think 72,000 
angels could do to this armed guard from the temple. (laughs) This is an act of willing submission on the part of the Lord Jesus. He's going willingly. He is not the weakest person in this garden. And then Jesus speaks to the crowds. He rebukes the crowds himself. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? What? The reason that you're arresting me this way, it's a demonstration, Jesus says to them, that you're not really interested in justice. You're just trying to get, me, get rid of me. You don't really care about justice by arresting me this way. But it does fulfill uh, the scriptures. He makes reference to this. Uh, Isaiah 53, 12. Isaiah 53, 12 in part says, he was numbered with the transgressors. Am I a, re- a rebel? Am I a robber? Am I a terrorist? that you're coming out to arrest me this way? Then verse 56 says that the disciples flee. What would faithfulness to Jesus look like at this moment in time? What would it look like for the disciples to not desert him and flee, but to stand there faithfully? What would that look like? Faithfulness at this moment doesn't mean drawing swords. Jesus has made that clear. That's not what faithfulness to Jesus looks like right now. But what would it look like for them if the disciples were to be faithfully following him and not desert him and flee? Well, Matthew doesn't imagine it. But you're supposed to imagine yourself here in your own hour of testing. Do I run away from the name of Jesus? Do I run away from owning him? They don't stop to think about the lordship of Jesus at all, that Jesus, of his authority. That, I, uh, you've got 72,000 angels that will come? Okay, we're fine. We're okay. They don't think about that at all. What must these guards have thought? Huh, here we are to... <laughs> arrest someone who thinks he's the Messiah and he can't even get his closest followers to stick with him. What kind of Messiah is he? That's the first scene, the first three things that Jesus says. Now, the second scene that we move into is verse 57, where Jesus is tried by the Sanhedrin. And we're going to look at what he says again here. But first, we should think about this. If if you are familiar with the Gospels, you know that none of the Gospel writers uh, at this point in time are trying to provide a comprehensive outline of what happens in this night. They focus on different elements. None of them are trying to give us a comprehensive outline. As best we can tell, putting the Gospels together, Jesus had six trials or maybe hearings or interrogations. That might be a better way to say it. John tells us that when he's arrested at first in the book of John, he's taken to the former high priest Annas and interviewed by him. Probably that happens while they're trying to get the members of the Sanhedrin together in the middle of the night. Somebody's got to go to all those homes, knock on the doors, and get those men to gather. So Annas, and then two, there's the trial before Caiaphas that we're going to that we're reading here in this text. And third, there's another trial before the Sanhedrin early in the morning. And then there's, uh, a, he's interrogated by Pilate, then by Herod, and then by Pilate. So that's six. Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, uh, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. All six of those hearings that he goes through. Um, some readers want to focus on the illegality of what happens this evening. And that's, that is true. There's, 
a, a lot of fishy things going on. It's a trial that's held at night. It's a rush trial. Capital crimes are not supposed to be rushed like that. It's, it's, uh, um, there's no, no opportunity for defense to be made. Uh, they're breaking all kinds of rules, all kinds of rules. Uh, those rules admittedly were written down a few decades after this happened, and we're not sure they completely apply here, but something, it's just not, this is not right. The Jewish leaders, the text tells us the Jewish leaders are trying to justify their plan to turn Jesus over for execution. They have a verdict in mind, death, and now they just need the evidence to, to get, reach that verdict. That, that's, that's the only problem. And Matthew tells us that they're not very good at finding, uh, uh, finding the evidence they wanted. They've got no shortage of witnesses, they get witnesses coming out their ears, and they're coming and making up stories and telling things. And the problem is, some of the witness testimony doesn't agree with each other. And when, when it, you ask them the simplest question to verify, uh, do you have any evidence of what you're telling is true? They just, they, they fall apart. They have no credibility, these witnesses. This is the worst conspiracy ever. They can't get their act together, these uh, religious leaders who are trying to execute Jesus. And until, finally, here, two guys remember something that Jesus had said about the temple. In John chapter 2, it's not in Matthew, but in John chapter 2, Jesus had cleared the temple, and they came to him and they said, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, the temple of Herod, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, the high priest, Caiaphas, does not probe what Jesus meant by that in John 2. He just takes it as a sign. If Jesus opposes the temple, then he must oppose God himself. What do you have to say for yourself? And Jesus doesn't answer. Why bother? Again, fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7 this time. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then the high priest, Caiaphas, puts him under an oath. He makes him, you must, by God, answer my question, are you the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And, and you might think that Caiaphas is changing directions a little bit, but not necessarily because they believe that the Messiah was going to fix, cleanse, uh, repair the temple, that he was going to restore the temple. So are you the, are you the one who's going to take care of the temple? Tell me. And Jesus speaks, and he finally gives them the evidence that they need to try to convict him. Notice this. It comes from Jesus' own mouth, not from any of the false witnesses. He's the one who has to give them the evidence they need to convict him. Who's really in charge here? Um, I don't mean to be disrespectful to the Sanhedrin, but if, if it was up to these bozos, Jesus would never have been convicted. He has to give them the evidence himself. Who's in charge here? John was telling the truth, was he not? In John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave his son. His son was not taken from him. He gave his son. 
Or remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus' life was not stolen by wicked men. It was given by a good and loving God. It's true. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This perish, perish, why? Well, we're all destined to perish because of our sin, but God gave his son as our sin bearer so that all who believe in him will receive forgiveness and have eternal life. This is not the triumph of the plan of wicked men. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to provide a sin bearer for us. Now, the lordship of Jesus is on display in his answer to, to, to uh, uh, Caiaphas. He says, verse 64, I say to you, all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He actually says, you have said so, which means, yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, but not in the way that you're thinking, not in the kick the Romans into the sea type way thinking, not in the I'm going to set up my kingdom right now type way of thinking. I am the Messiah, the Son of God in the I'm coming back someday to judge the whole world type of way. That's the kind of Messiah I am. And he refers to a couple of different passages in the Old Testament. Um, Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then Daniel 7 He talks about coming in the clouds. Look what Daniel 7 says. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Yes, yes, Caiaphas, I am the Messiah, the son of the living God, in the sense that I'm coming back one day and I will judge the whole world and rule the whole world. And right now, Caiaphas, you're on in the judge's seat and I'm on trial, but someday I will be in the judgment seat and everyone will be on trial before me. It's not a way that people like to think of Jesus, that he is the judge of the whole world, but here he confesses this in front of Caiaphas. You'll see me someday, Caiaphas, judge the world. The high, priest, the high priest, what should Caiaphas have done at this point in time? Bend the knee in repentance. Oh, Lord, I humbly bow before you. No, he tears his clothes, his robe. Scriptures forbid the high priest from doing this. And he yells, blasphemy. And if he's committed blasphemy, he's deserving of death. And he's, if he's worth deserving of death, then what's a little beating right now? For him. And that's what they do. The emphasis in this passage is on the lordship of Jesus. And that is our anchor for the hour of testing, because in every hour of testing that you experience, you can be assured that Jesus is Lord over it. He has absolute authority over every event, over every circumstances, over every person uh, that you encounter in your hour of testing. 
It reminds me of the, the gospel song that we sometimes sing. Uh, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. There's no one with more authority in your life than the Lord Jesus who is directing the circumstances of your life. His lordship. Uh, it's a, it comes up in his conversation that he has with Pilate later. John chapter 19, Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You don't have any authority that hasn't been given to you. Robert Murray McShane said, when thinking about the authority of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Michael Bond, a couple of years ago, wrote an article for Wired Magazine. It's called, Why Humans Totally Freak Out When They Get Lost. And um, he talks about getting lost. And in, uh, he says, getting lost is, is in our fairy tales. A lot of our fairy tales are about children getting lost, Hansel and Gretel, uh, Snow White wanders off. Um, what those fairy tales have in common is that they, they are often rescue stories. Somebody comes to rescue them. Uh, reality was not so kind. Many of the North American settlers who came, uh, sorry, European settlers who came to North America, uh, one of the most common causes of death of their children was that they would wander off and be lost in the woods. Uh, there's a research by, by the name of Jan Suman uh, who attached GPS uh, um, uh, my, uh, packs to people who were wandering through the forest in Germany and the Sahara Desert. Uh, uh, Dr. Suman gave them these packs and said, no, I want you to walk straight across. You keep going straight. And what they observed is that uh, it didn't take very long after the sun was obscured by clouds for people to, get, to start to wander. Uh, and you know, when you're walking a long distance, a small deviation at the beginning is not that big a deal, but if you keep going that direction, you get really, really, really lost. They concluded that if people don't have some sort of marker to indicate where they are, most human beings won't wander more than 100 meters from where they started. We need an anchor. We need something to anchor us to our surroundings. And for us who are followers of Jesus, his lordship is the anchor that orients us, always. Now, the, the second reality in this text is not less significant, but we're going to spend a lot less time on it. The second reality after the lordship of Jesus is the plan of God. And there's two references to that in this passage. Did you see that verse 40, 54? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen in this way? And then verse 56, all this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. What scriptures? Isaiah 53. Zechariah 9 to 14, Matthew refers to that several times in this book. The story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. The story of a man who is rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery with the expectation he would die, and who in turn comes, as it were, back from the dead and rescues his family from starvation. Scriptures are fulfilled here. Jesus settled into the plan of God. 
He came to do God's will. Now the will of God in the garden is pressing down on him and Jesus conforms to it. He, he bends to it. He submits to it. Drew Dick uh, wrote a book several years ago about why people leave the faith and he was talking to a young man about why he left Christianity. He became a Wiccan, this young man did. When you become a Wiccan, you change your name. So he interviewed a young man by the name of Morning Hawk Apollo. He, this is what Morning Hawk Apollo said. Ultimately, why I left is that the Christian God demands that you submit to his will. In Wicca, it's just the other way around. Your will is paramount. We believe in gods and goddesses, but the deities we choose to serve are based on our wills. The plan of God, this steadying influence. God's in control, even if it includes spitting and slapping and beating. God's in control. His plan. His plan. It's not easy to reconcile ourselves to that. It's not easy for any of us to reconcile ourselves to that at times, especially when God's plan involves something that's so incredibly painful. Do you want to know what happened to Thomas Cramner? After Thomas Cramner signed that document renouncing his belief in the good news of the gospel, his conscience bit at him immediately. <coughs> and contrary to what they had told him, he wasn't set free. He signed that document, and then they decided that he'd done just too much damage, uh, and uh, he had to be uh, burned at the stake. So on the day of his execution, their plan was they were going to put him up on a stage and have him read another statement of his loyalty to the Pope and his rejection of the teachings of uh, Martin Luther, the gospel, the good news of grace. He was going to have to read another statement. He'd signed one. He was going to read another one, and then they were going to execute him. But his conscience had bit into him. And when he stood up on the stage, he said, I come to the great thing that troubleth my conscience more than any other thing that I have ever said or did in my life. And referring to the note that he had signed, all such bills which I have written or signed with my own hand are untrue. And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. And as for the sacrament, and then they cut off his mic. He didn't get to finish what he was going to say at that point in time. They dragged him off the stage, tied him to a stake, and set it on fire. And Thomas Cramner took the hand that he had used to sign that renouncing of the gospel, and he put it in the fire, and he said, this is the hand that has offended against my Savior. It should burn first. He wasn't ready the first time. Thomas Cramner wasn't. Oh, but he was the second time. And the disciples in this passage, they were not ready in Matthew chapter 26. They should have been. They weren't ready. But you read the book of Acts, and oh, they were ready eventually. They prove themselves. Now you're supposed to read this and ask yourself, am I ready? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we read this passage in awe and wonder that he uh, submitted himself to these uh, poorly planned evil uh, uh, plans of, of these religious leaders. It's, it's astounding to see. It's almost as if he had to lead them along the way so that they would reach 
uh, what, they, what they wanted, but that was part of your, your plan from the beginning. So we read this with awe, and, and Lord, we also read this with a sense of conviction. We, we, want, we don't want to be among those numbered who desert and flee in the hour of testing. Lord, we know, we know not what the week ahead may hold for us, the opportunities that we'll have to represent the Lord Jesus. It, it's, it's hard to imagine in the comfort in which we live in this country that it will, we'll, ha, we'll be asked to, to, to confess Christ in the face of a sword or a gun. It's hard, hard to imagine that that would be possible. But the, it's not hard to imagine that there'll be little things that chip away at us. So help us, help us to, to be confident in the authority of the, Lord, uh, of the Lord Jesus and in your good plan. Help us, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying,